Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and welcome along to the tennis podcast. It's not a daily Grand Slam tennis podcast, sadly. We've all had a week of Australian Open FOMO. We do have some bits and bobs of tennis news, odds and ends to talk about, and we will do so. But the majority of the show will be dedicated to answering your listener questions, ably curated by our guest editor for the week, Simon Pearce. And we're always... We're always somewhat bowled over by the quality of, of the curation we get from our guest editors, but I really, I don't, I, I, I don't want to set the bar too high because we've still got to record it and, and live up to what I'm about to say. But these are top-notch questions, I would yeah. say, David. I would agree. And and, and Simon Pierce is somebody whose emails I eagerly open when they arrive, I have to say. Uh, he, I find him very entertaining generally. And I think he's also of similar similar vintage to me as well, which I really appreciate. Whose emails do you less eagerly open? Whose name do you see and go, oh? Oh, that's a hospital pass, isn't it? <laughs> It is a listen, it is a listener question show. I'm a listener. <laughs> um, yeah, this, I've, I answered a few this. I was up this morning at four a.m. answering a few that would you know one or two might fall into that that category. There uh, are one or two tennis tournaments that, though very well intentioned, and I don't want to criticise the the efforts to keep us abreast of all pertinent information, but perhaps their assessment of what is pertinent information to the media and requires its own dedicated email might be a bit loose. <laughs> yes. Would you, would but, you but, agree with that? But we do love the, the enthusiasm. Um, yes. And uh, we welcome all emails. <laughs> Just uh, Some may take longer than others to respond to. Um, but there we yes. are. The Simon's yes. great. Yes, you'll notice there is no Matt Roberts uh, on this episode. I'm really, I'm really sad to say that he's had a bereavement in the family, so won't be joining us on this episode. So you're going to um, have a glimpse into what the tennis podcast used to be. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I'm sure everyone will agree that he'll be much missed on this episode, and uh, you as well as we will be thinking of him. Um, but yeah, for, for new listeners, this is what the podcast used to be like. Yeah. And um, as much as as much as we're going to do our very best, I I would expect this to be a substandard podcast. Well, me Enjoy. too. If the duration, if you're looking at the duration and it says 35 minutes as opposed to 58, as it usually is, uh, that's because Catherine and I had a row in about half an hour's time and, uh, and, and there was no mat to sort it out. <laughs> No, Matt, to just go so awkwardly silent that we feel guilty enough to to resolve our issues. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah. Well, one of the questions, David, uh, preview alert is uh, is about our rows. In fact, every time we appeal for listener questions, there is always one question saying, "Can you can you tell us about your rows?" All I would say is, there's a reason we edit them out. I always want to answer with look eight hundred and something episodes. All right. See, we sort them out. We sort them out, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, we've had we've had Matt to referee on all recent episodes, David. So let's see how we go. Uh, we'll get on to listener questions um, in a short while. But first of all, kind of bits and bobs uh, from the week that was in tennis. We obviously had uh, the Montpellier event uh, last week. Um, and Andy Murray was playing in it. Uh, he lost in the first round to Igor Gerasimov in straight sets, a, a match I think we all we all watched. Um, and certainly all my family watched it and my dad described it as a tough watch for Andy Murray fans. Um, he, he did a very interesting media conference on the eve of that tournament prior to the Gerasimov loss. Obviously, he was coming into that tournament off the back of having reached the final in the Biela Challenger. Um, And uh, first of all, he said some very relatable stuff about how he just didn't watch any of the Australian Open because the FOMO was was too much. He said it was a struggle, to be honest. I stopped following all the tennis players I follow on social media because I just really didn't want to see it. Um, And I just love that. Yeah. I love that after all the Australian Opens he's played, he still can't can't bear to miss one or miss another one, certainly. So, um, yeah, I love those quotes. Um, talking about the Biela Challenger, he said it was good to get five matches. I found it tricky conditions to play there, to be honest. In terms of the level of tennis, it was at times OK. Uh, it was good to get the matches and not feel pain. And that last comment there seems to be the most significant the fact that he's not in pain thank goodness uh, he says he's practicing with a lot of top players so he feels like he has the barometer of where he's at from that practice he says if I was getting smoked when I was practicing and playing with the guys I wouldn't keep going through it but I know the level that I'm playing at I've been playing and practicing with guys who are between 20 60 70 in the world and I'm doing absolutely fine. And that's off the back of hardly playing any matches in the past couple of years. If I can stay fit for a period of time and get good practice in and matches in, I don't see why I shouldn't be able to compete with the best players. Um, says, you know, it, by best players, he doesn't necessarily mean Yurafas, Novaks, Rogers. He he threw a Medvedev and a team in there, interestingly. <laughs> um uh, he said, I still feel like I can compete, can compete for big events. I wish I was able to show that in Australia because I was ready to do that. No question, I was ready to do that. He says, uh, if I could stay fit for a period of time, then we'll see. Let's see whether I can compete. I'm doing it each week. I'm going to get the chance to compete against him. So let's see. People keep asking me, let's just see what happens. What matters is when I'm on the court. Can I still do it? We'll find out. And there's such a telling last line there or the last line in this piece I'm reading from the ATP Tour website, because that's the point, isn't it? He is unable to answer that question of, can I still do it? Mm. And whether the answer is yes or no, he wants to feel sure about the answer to that question before he, before he stops. And maybe he won't ever, maybe that's a, 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 um, a pointless pursuit, but at the moment it doesn't feel pointless to him. He feels like there are answers out there. No, uh, and and that's exactly it. He needs to be able to give this a proper go, hopefully with a good run of fitness so that he can try out multiple times whether his body is going to allow him to play at the level he wants to play at. And and the the fact that he thinks his practice level is high enough is is a good sign. Yes, he won some matches in the lower level of tournament. I, I watched that match as you you both did, and and for a set he was absolutely right there with Garasimov. Okay, you may say, well, who's Garasimov? Well, actually, he's a blooming good player who got all the way in the tournament, and he's a really explosive player. And he hit a purple patch in the second set that Murray just could not live with. Um, and I think I think Murray did fade as well. I think I think mentally. He it was noticeable that he really struggled to 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 come back from the disappointment or the blow of not winning that first set because he was probably the better player in that first set and early on in it he was timing it beautifully with Murray I I was really encouraged by some of the winners he was hitting on the rise down the line with the backhand we've just got to have repeat opportunities to to see and uh, as we record right now on on Monday morning 
He's due to play again in the evening, our time, against Robin Hasser in the first round of Rotterdam. And uh, again, it's, you know, that's not a bad draw, on, given, given the number of players that are in that draw. I mean, it's a strong tournament. Um, that's not the worst draw in the world. It's just that Hasser is also capable of running hot and, and blowing you off the court. So it's just another good opportunity for Murray to see where he, where he is. And yeah, I, I, look, I wish him well because for all the reasons we know, all his history and everything, you want to see this work for him in some way. But the fact, for me, the fact that he is physically able to still keep trying is a really good sign because I was concerned last year that his body just didn't, wasn't even going to allow what we're having right now. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Grasimov incidentally lost out to David Goffin in the semi-finals, who went on to win the title. So quite the turnaround from the David Goffin that we all watched in Melbourne. It's big, isn't it? It's a big yeah. deal for David Goff, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely. Mean, you know, he, he's had a rough time recently mm. and he's voiced how down he was last year, I think, with the with the life of the bubble tennis player. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about his bad Superman looks and that's in reference, I think, to Superman 4 when he had his, had his beard and he looked like he was probably down in shots in a sort of saloon in his spare time. Uh, has, yeah. has he got rid of the beard? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I think Because if he's he, got rid of the beard, then that, for me, is enough data that his yeah. results are I mean, directly correlative to his beard That would have dropped 10 status. years off him, wouldn't it? If he shaved that mm. beard, off, beard off, he becomes 14 again rather than 24. Mm. Um, uh, but, I mean, I just think it's a, a really good s- run of results for Goff and that, and just in the nick of time for him. <laughs> I think he's older than 24, David. I know he is, but he looks 14, doesn't he, when he's clean-shaven? Right, okay. Yes, he's trying to shake off the boy band look. Um, the as You mentioned, David, that uh, Andy Murray is in the Rotterdam draw this week. Good draw. The uh, the top seed is Daniil Medvedev, aiming to start metronomically winning titles again. First round against Dusan Lajevic. Uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas is the second seed. And, oh, he's got Igor Garasimov. Mm. Um, who else have we got? We've got Stan Wawrinka, uh, David Goffin's in that draw, taking on Jan Leonard Struff in the opening round. Zverev is there. He took a late wild card, I think, third seed. He takes on uh, Alexander Bublik and Felix Auger Aliasim is also there. Oh, as is Botic van, van der Zanschlup. Oh, you're your old mate. we should mate. all be looking out for. There you go. I've looked out for him and I've yeah. seen him. See? He plays Kane. No, he doesn't. He plays Borna Chorich, David, in the first round. So, one to watch for you. I'm just looking at the trophy pick of David Goffin with his with a really extravagant looking plate, all multicolours, very nice looking thing, and he is with beard. Oh, okay. All data out of the window. What a waste. <laughs> fifth, fifth title, fifth title, um, uh, and and so well done to him. Um. Iga Sviontek also won a title this week. Uh, she beat Belinda Bencic in the Adelaide final. She looked French Open good. I mean, I yeah. know it's not the same quality of tournament and opposition, etc. But Belinda Bencic though, was playing darn good tennis. And Sviontek, yeah, I'm swiped so her aside French Open style. I don't, I don't know why, but I feel almost parental to, uh, to Iga Sviontek. There's just sort of... Something about her because she's young and she had this incredible breakthrough at the French Open. I just, I just worry for her that that whether she can handle it and and just be that sort of carefree spirit on the court that she comes across as as somebody who plays such creative tennis. And and I think the Australian Open was a real boost in that regard. She showed she was up for it. Okay, she lost out to Simona Halep, but. You can lose to Simona Hallett, that's fine. Um, and in this tournament, ah, oh, she makes me want to just sing, watching her play that's, tennis. That's welcome on this podcast, David. Yeah. Well, you know, it's going to happen. I mean, House of Pain, Jump Around, I was not far away, I'm telling you, uh, from a rendition on this show in response to Igor Fiontek's hey, brilliance. you're going to be in charge of shout-outs today. Well, so see what well, maybe I am. Um, but, I mean, she's... So. I think she hit t- something like 22 winners and six unforced errors in the final. Um, R- ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, I watched the highlights after after it. I mean, I, I actually only switched. It was so quick. I switched on and they were, they were already at match points. So I went, went back and watched it, uh, the, some of the highlights. And 
I didn't even think that Benchish was doing much wrong. She was just getting overpowered. It's mm. it, it's you you because Sviantek's able to beat you in different ways. I mean, she kind of but she does them all in a package. It's not it's not just sort of right. Oh, my power game's not working. I'll rely on my touch. She just does them all, and it's overwhelming when she's on. Um, she makes she's the, she's the really pleasant surprise of the group to me because I think this is a a truly special era uh, in women's tennis and for tennis generally therefore and she's the surprise package to me I I thought she was going to be one of the pack I didn't know she I mean obviously when she won the French Open you think something different and then like I say I immediately worry that that's a one-off and she does this and I know it's only one more tournament, but I love the glee in her face when she wins. The sheer joy. And uh, I think she's great. <laughs> you really do get animated when you talk about Iga Svantec. I mean, I love her. I think she's brilliant. But I do love to hear you talk about her. It's, mm. it's lovely. It's very uplifting, David. Thank you very much. Um, the original nine... All nine of them have been inducted or are going to be inducted, have been nominated for induction into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Um, and this is just a, a, a wonderful story. I should say that Leighton Hewitt, two-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one, and um, the esteemed tennis coach, Dennis van der Meer, who I've read a little bit about this morning and I've made a, a note to learn some more about. He's also being uh, inducted this year. He um, apparently kind of revolutionised the whole way um, tennis is coached and taught. He, a teacher's teacher is how they referred to him and he's being inducted posthumously and he sadly passed away um, a couple of years ago. But all of the original nine are to be inducted into the um, International Tennis Hall of Fame and that's just, I mean, it's just so right, isn't it? I absolutely love it. They are Peaches, Barkovitz, Rosie Casals, Julie Heldman, Billie Jean King, of course, Christy Pigeon, Nancy Ritchie, Valerie Zeigenfuss. Uh, those are the seven Americans. And then there were the two Australians who, of course, featured on the coin toss coin. This is Australian Open. That inexplicably, people weren't choosing. They were going for A and Z over over Judy uh, Judy Dalton and Kerry Melville. I, yeah. I don't understand why it wasn't a Judy Kerry every time yeah, situation. Or just Judy on one side, Kerry on the other. I mean, sorry, sure, yeah. No, no offense. I imagine A and Z probably stuck in some money like, that surely they Judy could have done. Kerry didn't, but both of them brought to you by A and Z or something like that. But I mean, actually, by the end of the tournament, I noticed that players were starting to get the message that actually these are two people that we really should be celebrating and picking. Uh, in, 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 but I mean, you're right. What a, it's clearly way, way overdue. Um, and, and I'm increasingly starting to care about the International Tennis Hall of Fame as something that I think about because in Britain we we've not historically celebrated those sort of things we don't really have them it's not it's not really a thing here and yet i i think that they do a really really great job of celebrating the the sports history they are it's official museum really aren't they and and they're, they're and it's somewhere i'd love to go and visit one day I, i'm told it's absolutely spectacular um tennis podcast I, trip I, I do care about players and especially a group like that being recognised in that way. And I'm really chuffed that that, that has happened. Cause, and especially because of the way Billie Jean King spoke in our interview about how she says, I always get the credit and I, and, and I want them to get some of the limelight. And, and I love that. Mm, me too. And I agree with you about the um, the Hall of Fame. We've discussed before how it's just so un, un-British having a Hall of Fame. It's just not part of our sporting culture at all. But... And I've always thought, well, they're already a two-time Grand Slam champion. What does, I mean, that by definition makes them in whatever a Hall of Fame is. Like, why do you need to also anoint them a Hall of Famer? They're, you know, they're there by virtue of being a two-time Grand Slam champion or however many they won or whatever. But I don't know, things like the original nine, that, that makes them 
like giving original the original nine prominence and renewed relevance or highlighting their relevance anew gives them relevance i think um and that's great um before uh we move on a couple of other bits uh we've got the Dota Doha WTA event happening this week uh, quite a few players sort of coming back from various things Kiki Burton's um she didn't feature at the start of the year with an Achilles injury she's coming back Madison Keys and Amanda Anisimova they're both coming back from covid uh, Alina Vesnina uh, is playing doubles in Doha this week. Uh, her first tor- tournament uh, back after giving birth to daughter Elizabeth, which is amazing. I have—I must admit, I didn't realise she was coming back. Um, so that's that's a lovely story. Um, Ons Jabur is playing uh, the finals on Saturday, and uh, we have a round one match between Azarenka and Kuznetsova. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that'll ooh. do. Yeah, very nice. Um, and last bit of um, business before we move on to Simon's excellent questions is that John Isner has been tweeting. He says, oh, it's a it's a five tweet thread. Agree or not, I suppose he's raising a, an interesting debate point. He says the ATP is a broken system. Players and tournaments as partners need to work together, but 60% cut and 80% champions cut in one of our biggest events that has TV, data, sponsorship and newly approved gambling revenue intact isn't a partnership at all. He's referring uh, to the announcement of uh, prize money at this year's Miami Open, which is significantly down on on last year and and even more down no sorry significantly down on on two years ago which is of course is is when it was last stage down from uh 16.7 million to 6.68 million equally divided between the men and women he says how about a true audit to see how much tournaments are actually hurting and then a money formula after the event to reconcile. Amazing we still don't have this in a lot of our big events. How does that make any sense? Tennis is run like an intramural sport. I've got nothing on that. Um, no idea what that means. Check NBA, MLB, NHL, PGA, etc., etc. Not comparing revenue popularity to those sports, but take a peek at their structure, talent representation and percentage of revenue models. Tennis is plagued by conflict and lack of transparency. Promoters own assets that appreciate and have infinite time to monetize that asset. Whereas the players have a short amount of time to maximise our talents, that's a broken system. So players should take a 60% cut and 80% champions cut while ATP executives keep full salaries, benefits and expense accounts. Make that make some sense. Seems a little, just a little bit hypocritical, don't you think? What, what don't you think, David? Well, look, first of all, I think, he, I think his tweets are fine. Really, in terms of, uh, I think that he's he's been strident. He's said what he thinks, and he's expressed himself. Apart from the bit that I don't understand as a British person, the intramural bit, uh, he's expressed himself pretty clearly. Um, I just don't understand the timing uh, of those tweets in the middle of a pandemic. I, I get the point that we've just had these the details of the prize money for Miami released. And yeah, it is, when you look at it, it is shocking to see the degree to which prize money has been cut. Um, And we've just seen in Doha this week, I think the champion is getting less than half of what they got two years ago. Um, But that's just the world we're in. That's just realistic. That is, if you want tennis to happen right now, yeah, get used to it. (laughs) That's it. I mean, what do you expect? Really, if if tournaments can't let fans in and can't sell tickets, they're going to be less well off financially. There's less money in the pot for a start. There are other elements to that as well. The the rest of the economy is struggling. Sponsorship will be will be struggling. Um, yes, they're, they're they're staging these events in order to get the media rights in the first place. I think the wider point about the tour is one that's very long been discussed and argued, and Andy Roddick has made the case for years about how he feels players should get more of what is created. And um, and I just think for for John to sort of 
he's missed the Australian Open for perfectly legitimate reasons because he doesn't want to leave his family, a, a young family at this particular time. Totally get that. Um, and for tennis to be trying to start up again in the middle of a pandemic and then just, just come out and just hammer it, I, I just think, come on. I mean, if I'm a tournament, I'm thinking, well, why are we bothering? You know, we're, we're, we're running these events and trying to keep the sport going. Yeah, I get your point. But really, what about we all work in this together and try and work it out and, and make it work and and just accept a bit less at the moment, for goodness sake. Um, it's just, it, you're losing hearts and minds with a, with a series of tweets like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. It's not that there aren't pertinent points in there and I'd always be up for an independent audit kind of of anything you know any additional transparency independent assessment of the structure of the sport you know great i don't think there's any suggestion that improvements can't be made and and that there are conflicts at the heart of governance that are problematic but yeah it's sort of i saw that and i thought i I just i just feel exhausted by i just just no capacity to engage with that at the moment at all and yeah, it's just, it's just not not the time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Let's ask other questions, courtesy of Simon Pearce, our guest editor for this week on the tennis podcast there's going to be a second edition of these uh, any question of this any questions show because there are so many good questions honestly um i should say by the way that and i'm very disappointed to have to do this uh, on an episode where matt isn't with us because our mascot for the week is what's it all about alfie i mean his name's alfie i've just i've just that's, that's line from the song, Alfie. David doesn't even know the song, let alone feel inclined to sing it. Come back, Matt. Come back. Right. More, more, inf- don't know it. M- m- more info on Alfie <laughs> at the end of the show. <laughs> Moving on to questions from Simon. Um, we'll start with with Simon's own questions, and then we have some that he's cura- curated um, from responses on our social media. And I think this might be—I mean, I suppose it's quite sort of meaty and and technical, so it might not be to everyone's taste. But I think this is one of the best and best thought through questions we've ever received, David. So hold on to your hat. 
Um, he says, if on-base percentage is uniformly recognised as the most underrated but critical statistic in baseball, what is the tennis equivalent? In my view, it is percentage of second serves won. This, more than any other statistic, determines the result of a match. How well one defends their second serve determines the ultimate outcome. Who has the best individual second serve protection record since the ATP, WTA and ITF records began? I think Sampras will be very close to the top in the men's. If all else is equal, the best second serve wins. I believe the ultimate winner of the most slams between the big three will have the best second serve ratio on the basis of a weighted average. We don't spend enough time on the second serve as a key stroke and stat. And I should say before we go into our views on this, I have asked uh, my brother, who's a professional statistician, um, to run the data on this. He thinks he can come up with a pretty definitive answer for you, Simon. Um, so I'll let you know as and when we uh, we have a conclusion. But in the meantime, David and I shall speculate. <laughs> what do you think? With a bit of help uh, from uh, those players that have got very, very high statistics, um, because because I have had a little bit of a look at this. Because I mean, But they're not know, weighted, are they? Well, I'm always a bit wary of those statistics statistics but anyway i've I mean, shot you down before you've even said them i was um it is like the I, old days. I should say that when i was watching tennis before i got involved in it i i was definitely most interested I, I, the, the thing i heard about the most was second serve the strength of the second serve and i would hear it in relation to pete sampras because he was always regarded as having the best second serve in the world you know, and it was utterly reliable. You know, he could he could go after it, but it wasn't like Medvedev or Ivanisevich or Filipusis or Kyrgios just sort of slapping it down, trying to hit flat aces because they don't want to have to roll one and have a rally. Sampras is just sort of, I guess you might call it, eighty percent serve was 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 so difficult to return, and I and I. And and he could he he would just it wouldn't let him down. You might beat him if you were Agassi. You might be good enough to to beat him on it. But I mean, it was rare. I think. Um, and I mean, even if you look at the the leaderboard here for active players in their career of percentages points won, um, it's led by Rafael Nadal, then Roger Federer. Um, and it's 57% and 56%. Then it's John Isner, then it's Novak Djokovic, then it's Milos Raonic. So there's some big servers in there. But that, that element of their game is utterly reliable to them. And I think that that does tell you quite a lot, really. And it, Because if you compare that to first serve percentage points won, it's, it's all the big servers. It's Karlovic, then Raonic, then Query, then Isner than Songa, and they're the 70s and high 70s and 80%. The other one I would look at, and because uh, I think I think Simon's absolutely right, but the other one I would look at is return, return of, of serve. And, I mean, the stats bear this out of, of games broken. It's Nadal and Djokovic at the top. Um, I mean, I, you know, I regarded it, Djokovic as having the best return in the world today. Um, I always used to think of Agassi before, but obviously he's a, a former player now. Um, but those are the ones that I look at personally. What, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Look, the old adage is you're only as good as your second serve. And I'm sure that is, some, that is a line that was rolled out in almost every Sampras yeah. commentary. Yeah. Um, and I, I have oft looked at P. Candy Murray and thought that he has kind of put that adage to bed um, because his second serve relative to other great tennis players isn't very good I mean he's improved it and it's had ebbs and flows throughout his career um, there 28 definitely been... on the list he is there you go uh, and who's he surrounded by who are his bedfellows in that portion uh, of the list around the, the 28 mark Janko Tipsarevich Tommy Robredo Daniel Medvedev's in there at uh, 27. Um, but, you know, there are players just above him that, 
you know, you'd be surprised by Kaney Shakur is at 14. Um, Roberto Bautista Agud is at nine. You know, yeah, you, you, you definitely hear that line said less. And I've, I've kind of put that down to Andy Murray because he makes a mockery of it. But actually, as the way Simon's worded it kind of kind of accounts for that because he says how well one defends their second serve determines the ultimate outcome. And actually, Andy Murray is, over the course of his career, just by virtue of his other strengths, kind of made up for the weakness of the actual shot with how well he defends it, his footwork afterwards, the fact that he sort of anticipates where the return is is going and has the the foot speed to get there and the strength to be on on balance and all of that um but yeah i i i suspect that and again don't have the stats to back this up um, maybe math will be able to help with that but i suspect it's slightly less the case than it was in the 90s Mm. It's slightly less yeah. true that that is the defining statistic now than it was then. But to think of one that would be more defining even now, probably not. Probably if I did have to pick one out, that that would be it. Because it also, it accounts for so much of what tennis is about, you know, mental strength. You know, when the chips are down and you've missed your missed your first serve on a big point... Some players think, oh, God, I've missed my first serve. Um, disaster. And some players think, no big deal. So it's a second serve. That's still good. I've I've got this. No doubt that's what Sampras used to think. And it's that luxury of knowing you can take a few more chances than, well, than Ka- other players. Karlovic goes down from number one on first serve, uh, 80% plus, to number 10 on second serve, and Philip Kohlschreiber is ahead of him, you know. Look at you with all your Matt-esque numbers and well, lists. I thought I'd better step up, you know. This is extraordinary. I thought you were just going to talk about memories of Pete Sampras for this. So did, didn't, so did I didn't until didn't I found you'd this have website. Numbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think tentatively, Simon, we we agree with your hypothesis, don't we? Is that is that where we're at? Um, but we will seek further. Yeah, I, I, ju- I proof. I think I would just I would just put equal uh, weight behind return games one. Um, mm. When I look okay. at, okay, you know, I, I mean, I, th- I, I, th- I don't think I don't think Federer is as high on that uh, as 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 some of the others. Um, but I mean, he is. I'm just looking. He's down at number nine. Uh, is Federer. I mean, obviously, he's got a massive body of work. We also have to bear that in mind. Um, sheer number of matches, so his percentage may be influenced by that. But Andy Murray's fourth in the list of, of mm. return games won. And Nadal and Djokovic and actually Schwarzman ahead, ahead of but, him. But, but I mean, Sampras would have been quite low on that. I, I would think so, yeah. I mean, we don't have uh, non-active players here, but, uh, but I, I think that's right. Because, I mean, the feeling always used to be Sampras would just be quite happy to get one break of serve or win it on a tie break, you know, and 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 it'd be four games all and nothing's happened, you know, and and so yeah, he he would switch on his focus, I think, for particular games. Mm. I love how we answered that whole question without well, I speak for myself here without actually knowing what on base percentage is. So well done us. Uh, next question from Simon: Who would your ultimate mixed doubles match be between, and why? Simon's answer to this—it's a good one—is Sue Shea and Fabrice Santoro versus Miroslav Machia and Martina Hingis. I would definitely. I mean, I'd watch, watch it, Simon. Yeah, yeah. We're all having a viewing party to watch that one. <laughs> um, who would you go for, David? Well, I have put a lot of thought into this. Um, of course, he has. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I've thought about some of the great doubles partnerships. If you were to sort of separate Navratilova and Shriver, put them on opposite sides of the net alongside McEnroe and Fleming and put them on opposite sides of the net, you know, you'd get an incredible match. That Things like that. I'd love to see that sort of thing. But in the end, I've just had to go for e- Ivo Karlovic and Sara Irani against Diego Schwartzman and Venus Williams. Um is that just a height gag? A bit. Is that just a single-use height gag? Bit, a bit, a bit of a height gag. But I'm also. Wouldn't it be fascinating? 
Wouldn't it be fascinating? Uh, it'd be, it'd be it weird a, and enjoyable. Um, come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, imagine if that was a, like a massively meaningful match. Be so cool. I mean, I don't think it would be. I think it'd be a first round. But, um, imagine if but it yes. was a, like a Grand Slam final. <laughs> I was thinking that I would go for... I, I was inspired by that... Um, Serbia ATP Cup match involving Novak Djokovic and the dynamic where one member of the partnership is just getting openly pissed off at their team member. <laughs> and I sort of wanted to create that kind of vibe. Um, so I thought, you know, like a Marit Safin with somebody really sort of straight-laced that just doesn't want to make any errors and... and and at first I thought, well, maybe a Simona Hallett, but actually I think she would take it really well and be far too good-natured about Marit Safin. Come on, she's got a temper as well. They, 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 the two of them I would be kicking off. I don't think she would get annoyed at Marit Safin, though. Mm. I thought about Angelique Kerber. Do you remember when Angelique Kerber uh, played Hopman Cup mixed doubles with Alexander Zverev and she got really annoyed with him for making her wait Yeah. to get to the court? That we, kind of vibe. That was excellent. Yeah, that was really great. Um, so I sort of wanted to create create that kind of thing. Can you submit any other partnerships where there would be inter-knee sign struggles? Well, Nick Kyrgios and anyone? Yeah. Nick Kyrgios and somebody that would get pissed off at Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. Yeah. Really wound who would, up who, who would who would Who would get pissed off at him? Um... Yulia Putintseva. <laughs> yes, please. Oh my gosh, like Yulia Putintseva and Nick Kyrgios against Marit Safin and Danielle Collins. <laughs> yes, that's that's very excellent. And everyone's Quite. just having a row. Great. Quite happy with that, yeah. Um, right, next question. What about Elise Cornet yeah. and Nick Kyrgios? That would be entertaining. Yes. Although Nick Kyrgios always gets really good mixed doubles partners, doesn't he? He's always playing mixed doubles and you know, he's at his he's at he's his best self playing doubles. So maybe there wouldn't be the aggro that I desire. And particularly mixed doubles. Yeah. Mm, annoying. David, next question. What role did the sport of tennis play in rescuing you from the lost law years? Oh my word. <laughs> when and what was the pivotal transformational moment? When was he found and reborn? Oh God! Uh, when did when did oh, we um, had forty Act minutes three begin? If it were, if this were a film, what would be the the moment, the plot device? How long have I got? <laughs> I mean, for this, David, as long as you like. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, tennis played an enormous part in my rebirth. Um, <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, be, I mean, it also played a part in the downfall initially, I have to say, because I was watching tennis when I was supposed to be doing other stuff uh, in 1991. And that's your fault, Jimmy Connors and Aaron Crickstein et al., um, but that was the moment that I decided that there was something in life I wanted to do as ridiculously far-fetched as it would have sounded to my parents who were getting called in to see the head of year about my non-attendance and my attitude. Um, and um, when I then piped up and said, I've decided I, wanted to work, I want to work in tennis. And they said, right, doing what? And I said, well, I don't really know. Just, I just want to be working in professional tennis. What, like Wimbledon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the other tournaments. Well, what other tournaments? There aren't any other tournaments. Yes, there are. Look, you know that satellite dish you've just bought? I've just found this tournament, the US Open, in the middle of the night, and I want to work there. Right, how are you going to do that? Um, and uh, it went on and on like this. Um, and, I mean, look, they were enormously supportive as well, I should say, and they let me retake the A-levels that I horrifically failed, uh, which took four years when it should have taken two. Um, but it allowed me to reboot uh completely and in the process gave me time to grow up um mature a little and uh to truly discover what i wanted to do in life um and by 
discovering what I wanted to do in life, I became committed and became motivated and became the sort of person that you now know. Um, who's just suddenly having ideas every five seconds and thinking, let's do them in right now. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 where tennis intervened. Um, and then just bit by bit, I I got given opportunities by writing. I wrote to tennis journalists. I wrote to existing tennis journalists and asked them, how do you become a tennis journalist? And a couple of them replied. And I got... Uh, invitations to go to the Telford Nationals, Telford National Championships in 1995, uh, which are no more. Um, but I went there with Barry Flatman and uh, John Parsons, the uh, the tennis correspondents of the Express and the and the Telegraph, respectively, at the time. Uh, both were great to me, both of them, and they just gave me an insight into what it was all about. And I realised when I went there. I really do want to do this for a living. I want to. I don't know what I want. To, what I'm going to be able to do, but I want to work in this sport. Um, Imagine if you got there and gone, "Oh, this is a bit rubbish. I will go back to being a reprobate." Yeah, that that was definitely a crossroads, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, there were there were many more crossroads that would follow. Um, but Simon, I can promise you that without tennis, I would. Where would you be? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure I would have sorted myself out some somehow, and just by becoming a bit more mature because I was a really silly person. Um, but I think I would have needed some point, some cause. I think most people need that, don't they? Um, and mine was to try and work in tennis, and I've found a way to do it. Oh. We're all very glad that you did. <laughs> we would not be none of us. Well, I don't know. What would you be doing if you hadn't? If I hadn't oh. sorted that out, and I think I'd have probably then? done something really um, kind of formulaic law, something like that. But then I think I'd have got bored, and I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, you you um, you came into tennis without me. I mean, you found you got an opportunity mm. before you met me. Okay, you met me when you were doing that uh, that that first job at Queens in two thousand and seven. But I mean, you did find a sort of way into the sport. On a yeah, set, you know. Yeah, but, I, 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 I sometimes I really enjoy the thought experiment of what I'd be doing, and I sort of put my hands in the flame, uh, and then sort of quickly get burned and run away from it because it's all just too ghastly to think about. Oh, fortunately, mm. that didn't happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, it's uh, it is extraordinary to me that that, that I managed to work in this sport um, because I knew nobody. I did not know a soul. I did not have any f- contacts or anything. And I mean, I got really lucky. I worked very hard, but I got very lucky, and uh, mm. I, I, I don't forget that easily. Should the ATP and WTA tours, David, be regionalised post-pandemic in order to help this make the sport more economically viable for players, tournaments and sponsors? Well, a total overhaul, um, mm. not just temporary overhaul, um, a sort of more... I think so, because he says, he says post-pandemic, so yeah. not just sort of a sticking plaster, how do we, how do well, we get by this is, right um, now? This is something that Paul McNamee is always talking about, the former Australian Open tournament director before Craig Tiley and, and a coach now to Shea Suwei, former doubles champion, um, Grand Slam doubles champion. He is adamant that tennis should be doing what golf does and have regionalised tours. Uh, like they have the PGA in America and they have the uh, the European Tour in Europe. They have other other circuits around the world, you know, and and he thinks that that's the way it should go. Um, and I definitely see, I, I see some benefits to that for sure. Um, and we're seeing offshoots of it right now. We're seeing, but more as a sort of emergency reaction. We're seeing the Adelaide tournament after the Australian Open. We're seeing... Um, Jamie Murray and his Battle of the Brits, and they've added this extra date in December, for instance. Um, 
albeit these are kind of more exhibition events those ones and as as is the uk pro league which recently announced that they're going to do a sort of a bit like bundesliga i suppose that we were talking about the other week you know that they're going to do that in britain and and have a season ending event in november these are sensible offshoots to provide business and a living for players and an opportunity for the business to work but in order for it to to work beyond that really the tours would need to i think be the the starting point and decide they would just need to overhaul themselves um and i think they've done a good job of reacting given the circumstances and expanding the australian circuit as much as they can and but there's so many fixed positions in the calendar that's very difficult to work around. You know, look at look at Indian Wells isn't going to happen in March and they've been trying to find a date later in the year. And it's not easy. It's not easy to just suddenly find a solution where you can go. Um, so how it, given how difficult it's been over the year to change, make any meaningful changes in the calendar, you'd have to have everybody come to the table and say, this isn't working, we need to rip it all up and start again and make it sensible geographically. Or add another separation and another body to tennis and say, okay, right, we're going to have the US tour and we're going to have all the rest of the world tour and the European tour, like they have in golf. Crikey, that is, to do that mid-sport while the sport is trying to also function, I just, I don't know whether that's doable, even if there's some sense to it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I really don't think it's going to happen. I've been surprised at how actually how little clamour and movement towards it happening there has been in the past year. If there are ever going to be circumstances that would create a significant movement in that direction, these are they. And as you say, it's happened a bit. There's been a few people talking about it. But really, not that much. Not if you think about having Simon Briggs on quite early doors in the pandemic and him saying him predicting potentially that that this is a scenario that could happen or at the very least it'd splinter off into a golf-style PGA um, and European tour situation, there there has been very little shift, incredibly. Um, So I don't think it'll happen. Um, Whether I want it to happen, I don't think I want it to happen to that extent I do think there's an argument for kind of I really love swings in the calendar um so you still have the tour element but there's also kind of a a coherent narrative and to an extent a kind of base that tennis players can be in European clay court swing the sunshine swing I think formalizing that in some way and getting rid of the kind of weird outliers not getting rid of, that sounds dismissive, but kind of ironing out, um, reconfiguring those weird outliers that kind of jumble up the whole thing. I think that's probably what I would do, create swings that are organised geographically and according to sur- surface and make makes, create a story of the year. Say, if yeah. you were starting from scratch, what, what story would we write for the year? And that's how it always used to feel to me when I was first interested in tennis, that there was, you know, Australia and a hard court swing and then a clay court swing and then the grass and then more hard courts and then indoors. That's to me how it was. And then I discovered Eurosport started to broadcast Gestad on clay after Wimbledon. And <laughs> and I could not get my – and I love that tournament. I've been to it many times. It's a beautiful tournament – but it doesn't make any sense to me as a mm. tennis fan. Why? Why is? Why are they going to clay after they've gone to grass and th- things like that? Mm. My proposal isn't very good news for Kitchbill, is it? I've lost <laughs> Dominic Team in my movement. You just shuffle it about, Catherine. So it goes before <laughs> the French Open. I think we've got time for just a couple of more. So we're gonna we're gonna finish Simon's questions, the ones he's come up with himself, uh, and then we'll do the ones that Simon has chosen from our social media on Thursday's show as we've got a couple more from Simon Uh, who's your famous tennis player alter ego and why oh you can go first can I yeah 
does alter ego mean they have to be like you or that they're the kind of f- the opposite of you i think or is got, it who you want to be i think it's it's probably got to be the opposite to you um but i think we could probably have one of each right i'll, I'll have bianca and rescue please I want one? well for sort of all of it. <laughs> I think she's she's kind of a she's kind of all the all the things that I would like to be, and kind of there's bits of it in me, but it's all been beaten down by, you know, being British and um, I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to be more. Check me out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... Okay, well, I think I am going to be Stan Wawrinka. Wawrinka's pronounce his name right. Right, uh, Stan Wawrinka. Wawrinka. Yeah, you think anyway? Yeah, yeah. Why? I know know I'm nothing like him. I was certain you'd go for someone tall. I know I'm nothing like him, Simon. So I'm going for something that I want to be. I want to be able to right. be barrel-chested and blast the living daylights out of the thing and actually go in more uh, often. And I want to be able to grow a proper beard. And, um, you know, I can't do any of those. You want to be a bruiser. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want to be a diesel. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could go for a bit of that as well. Um, okay, last question for you then, David. Do you think, and oh, this is quite an easy one, actually. It's a great question, but I I think I think we're going to be in glorious agreement here. Do you think that each of the women's finals of the slams should be five sets? Or even further, should the women's events at the majors be five sets start to finish? Well, we established, Simon, I think, some common ground a year or two ago in that we believe... Grand Slam should be best of three sets for the first four rounds and then best of five sets thereafter in both the men's and women's draws. And I've, I just found myself thinking that even more at the, at the recent Australian Open because, you know, I, I really like best of three set tennis when, when people aren't freezing at the start of it um, and matches being over before they've got going which happens a lot, I feel like, in the really latter stages of a massive tournament. Um, and I'd, I wanted to see another set of Serena Williams against Naomi Osaka, at least another set. I wanted to see another set of Jennifer Brady against Naomi Osaka, at least. Um, but I don't want to lose from the men's game what we had in Sitsabas against Nadal. I want to see those matches play out. And I feel like, yeah... They do go on forever, these best of five set matches in the first week and a bit, um, when the stakes just aren't as high and there's so many matches to fit in and it's just a mess, really. And if those were best of three sets, you could fit them in a bit more neatly and save some of the faff and the inevitable routine victories that are going to just take an extra set of time. And then when the stakes are at their highest and you've got show court matches all the way around and you've only got four quarterfinals in each draw and they can all go on the, the two show courts, make them best of five and celebrate that. Put them up in lights and allow them to be won without just nerves deciding them at the start of a match. Mm. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I mean, I... I believe in best of five tennis. I believe there's a place for it and a very valuable and important place for it in the sport. But but far more than that, far more than anything I believe about formats or the specifics of formats, I believe that men and women should be playing the same format. And increasingly, I find it absurd that they don't. I I find myself increasingly aware of it and just sort of imagining recording a podcast in 20 years time and going, can you believe, can you believe that only 20 years ago women used to play a shorter format of the sport? Um, you know, imagine women, women ran a 15 mile marathon. Just so, it's just so silly. Um, so kind of my, my sort of, primary argument would be do whatever you need to do to the formats to get them playing the same that is that's my main priority above 
all else. But in an ideal world, and I, I don't think this is that impractical. I think, I think this is a completely practical solution. Um, the 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 best of three for both in the first week and the best of five in in the second. I, I know it's not athletically as challenging, but I mean in snooker that they do that they play shorter formats in the first mm. few rounds and then they elevate it for the semis and the final and you're yeah playing almost twice as many frames and i i feel like that's fitting really absolutely we i mean we have been saying this for years and while we're on the subject i don't think we get the credit that we deserve for as far as i can tell um creating that concept david many years ago <laughs> Um, and I've heard I've heard very little I've heard very few significant um, arguments against it really or coherent ones the the one Uh, that that does get made is uh, players saying you can't switch formats mid-tournament you're just not physically ready for that and all that sort of stuff I, I I accept that it's an extra challenge but I it's the same for all of you just crack on with it. Yeah, yeah. Get on with it, folks. Um, <laughs> that's it for our questions for this episode. We'll be back on Thursday with more uh, questions from social media. Don't worry, Simon has weeded out the abusive ones. <laughs> and there's only high-quality, very respectful questions left for Thursday's show. Um, I really enjoy these Any Questions shows. I, um, Yeah, it's great setting the world's world to rights with david law and um and in the future and in the past matt roberts um we miss you matt we look forward to you being back uh very soon i hope um you can tell i'm putting off the fact that i have to do the shout outs can't you yeah go on Catherine. it's not the same waking in my boots a little bit can i talk about our mascot first yeah go on uh, the mascot is Alfie. He's owned by our listener, Clarissa. He's a rescue dog who's been with Clarissa since February 2014. Uh, she says, we'd fallen in love with his sister who lived next door. So we went to meet him. We picked him up and he immediately peed on us and we fell in love. Um, he's been skunked twice recently. Does that mean, mean being sprayed on by a skunk? Sounds like it. Because... Of all the hazards that I'm paranoid about with Billie Jean, that's a new one to add to the list. Add it to it, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, So hello, Alfie. Uh, You'll be our mascot on Thursday as well. We're very pleased to have you. You sound lovely. Um, We hope for uh, photo photo visual content of Alfie that we can share with you in the newsletter. Um, My mascot is Zeus. Matt's is Scouse or Mousel. David, yours is Rogue. Yeah. And our executive producer is Chris Albert Lee. And I've got nothing further to say before the shout out, so I'm going to have to get into it. Go on then. We have Kim Ferguson. Oh, like the former Manchester United manager and also the former Australian Open and US Open champion, Clysters. Sort of like yes, a, a both combo. Both those things, a yeah. love child. Right, Kim. Yes. Thanks Hello, for your Kim. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Double A, Adrian Antonio. D- That's good, isn't he, it? Does he call himself Double A? Nope. Well, oh. maybe he does. So it's you an opportunity was, missed if he doesn't. You were preempting the Brad Gilbert nickname of mm. because that's what he used to call Andre Agassi. Mm. What's his name again? Yeah, a- Adrian Antonio. Oh, it's Adrian. a good one, isn't it? It's a cracker. So you you should be a tennis player. Or just, you know, someone of note. Yeah. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. Probably is. Uh, well, you are now because you've been shouted out on the <laughs> tennis podcast. Hello, Adrian. Thanks for your support. And finally, we have Gillian Dobson. All right, Gillian. Uh, who would be a love child of Gillian Anderson and Anita Dobson. Was that EastEnders? Was that X Files? Yes. Well, and she's now Margaret Thatcher in The Queen, isn't she? No, The Which, Crown. I sorry. mean, that's a combo, isn't it? You know, going mm. one, one to the... And does she, can she pull them both off, do you think? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, for, for me, her, her Thatcher is, is too hammy. Um, uh, what, but, too, how do you make Thatcher too hammy? I mean, that well, takes Well, ha- have a watch. That. I will. Have a watch. I, mm. I never really understood X-Files. 
to be honest. Um, what the concepts or individual episodes or I just I turned a couple on and I thought oh, I can't be doing with this. When's the football? It on? was like a police investigative drama but with a supernatural edge. Yeah, I mean that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, Gillian, yeah. no offence. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your support, Gillian. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday with David's views of other successful 90s television programmes and much more. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, enjoy the tennis this week, Rotterdam and Doha and the men's and women's tours respectively. Federer is coming back next week uh, in the men's event in Doha. We'll be covering that, of course. Um, and thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.